Last week, uh, we served, uh, instead of worship in this room, we served uh, the teachers and staff at Highland Elementary School. And uh, at the end of that time, I, you know, I got up and kind of made an announcement to everybody and dismissed us. My son was standing right next to me. And right after we dismissed, he, he tugged on my shirt to tell me something. And I, I kind of leaned down and he said, oh, daddy, you are really in charge of this church. <laughs> Which, you know, is a very cute and funny moment. But, you know, I, I, was th- I was thinking about that throughout the week. And it really, that was precious, but it was also kind of a stern reminder to me of what it really means to be a pastor. Uh, you know, being a pastor, it's, it's more, really much more than just preaching sermons and, you know, organizing activities and programs and things, and, you know, and being in charge of stuff, you know, like, that's part of it, of course, but it's a, it's a very serious thing. It's a divine calling that, y'all, I'll just be really honest, I feel often inadequate for, and uh, sometimes I just feel incapable of doing it. And because today we are affirming and appointing two new elders here at Harvest Church, I wanted to dedicate our message time to this idea of what it means to be an elder or a pastor. Okay? Now, that may not strike you as very relevant to your life as I introduce it. You may think that has nothing to do with me, but I can assure you that it does. What we're going to talk about here, what we're going to see in Titus 1 and, and later in a minute in Acts chapter 20, we're going to see the absolute lifeblood, practically and spiritually, of the local church that has a very deep effect on all of us, every single one of us, right where we are, okay? I promise you that, and I think you'll see it as we go. See, the question of who leads the church and how the church is led is of the utmost importance. And if you've ever, if you've grown up around church or been in other churches, you may have been in churches that were led by committees, that were led by uh, the pastoral staff, or some other kind of kind of you know hierarchical leadership. Somebody was in charge. Maybe you've been in a church where nobody seemed to be in charge. I don't know. But most churches have some form of leadership. Here at Harvest Church, we are what's called an elder-led church. We're led by elders. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you guys uh, in broad strokes. We're not going to get into all the particulars today, but I'm going to tell you guys what that means to be elder-led, and also why it matters. And it does matter. Okay. So we see in Titus chapter one what's happening here. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church leader named Titus who is on the island of Crete, and Paul has, in, has entrusted him and is in this letter entrusting him with some very serious business here. We see that in Titus 1 verse 5. Look again there with me. Paul says to him, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Paul left Titus there, to assure that elders were installed and appointed in every church. Now, when we look at the, at the New Testament, one of the distinctions about the New Testament church, especially early on, is that as the gospel was being spread in, in places like Crete, the gospel, of course, had, had never been heard before anywhere up until the, the, the apostles began to share it abroad, right? But here in Crete, the gospel has never been shared. And so now that it has been shared and people have come to faith, in every city where the gospel has been proclaimed and Christians have now arisen, they've started these little congregations, these churches, the first church ever in this city, in that city, one church per city generally. And now Paul is saying every church, every city in this case, has to have elders to oversee the church. Okay? Um, and so that's the model that we're given in the New Testament. That's why we consider ourselves an elder-led church. We see it in the scriptures. But I want to say this to y'all. Some of this we might take for granted, but it's true and it needs to be said. Uh, we don't have a pope. 
There is a pope. He's not our pope. He's not our, our leader. He's not our dictator. We don't have anybody outside of us somewhere kind of sitting on high uh, dictating to us who we are, what we're about, and what we do. Uh, we don't have any kind of real genuine leadership that exists somewhere out there. We do have a leader in our church. We have a head of our church. We have a person who does oversee us. That's a person with a capital P. What we believe the New Testament declares is that Jesus Christ is the head of his church globally, universally, also locally. That Harvest Church, who leads Harvest Church? Ultimately, the answer, the buck, stops with Jesus, okay? But then Jesus, throughout the New Testament, God's ordained word tells us that the church very practically and very locally, the local expression of the church, is meant to be led by elders, by men who are esteemed as, as leaders who are, in a sense, under shepherds. We have the chief shepherd, Christ, whom we owe our allegiance to. We worship him. We praise him. He sets the agenda. He dictates truth. But on a practical and local level, we have elders, under shepherds, those who serve Christ and serve the church. Now, what kind of person are we talking about when we say that word, elder? Okay. Well, here's what Paul says. Look at verse 6. Here's the, here's the quality of this kind of man. Namely, he says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious. Pugnacious is such a cool word. You ought to use that this week. It means somebody who's looking for a fight, somebody who's belligerent, pugnacious. Not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Okay? Now, there's a lot in here, and I'm, I'm, I told you already we're not going to dig into every single line, um, but let me just say in broadly what Paul's giving us here are four chief ideas, four things an elder ought to be or ought to possess. Paul talks about his family, his character, his behavior, and his teaching. Okay? Family, character, behavior, and teaching. So let, let me just show you what Paul's saying here. His family, the elder's family, as a husband and father, an elder must care for the spiritual health of his home as a first importance. What he does in the church is not of the utmost importance. What happens in his home comes first. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, if an elder cannot manage his own home, his own household, how will he manage and lead the church of God? It's a fair question. And so uh, Paul is not saying here that an elder's family has no dysfunction. Every family has dysfunction. But he is saying that there is order, that there's spiritual leadership, that his home is the first priority in his life, and he leads it well. Okay? So his family comes first, Paul says. Then there is a character here that's worth imitating. There's a character worth imitating. An elder has to have. Paul says he must be above reproach, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Uh, this does not mean that an elder never sins. We're not talking about superheroes here, people who are somehow above the rest of us, an elite squad of men who are, just, who are above temptation. There's no such thing. Okay? We're not talking about a sinless person because that kind of person doesn't exist on this side of heaven, but we are talking about a person who has a kind, the kind of character that if, a, if an accusation of wrongdoing was levied against this man, you would be shocked. You would, your immediate response would be, no, not him, because you sense that this man has a character that is above reproach. He has a reputation 
that is as sterling as it gets. Not perfect, right, of course. But this is a person that you'd be shocked to hear something said badly against. You would, you, your, your first inclination would be to come to, his, uh, come to his aid, to come to his defense. Because that's not, that's not something he would do, right? That's, that's how this person is viewed. And Paul talks about his behavior. That, uh, that he is not quick-tempered or belligerent or greedy. He doesn't get drunk. He's not a boastful or selfish person. That in his interactions, both within the church, inside these walls, and outside in the community, that this is a person who uh, does not have a, uh, a, you know, we're not talking about a person with a long criminal record, somebody who puts on a face maybe in, in church, in religious things, but is entirely different uh, and, and on, on the other side of the coin and, and the rest of the, what he does, okay? This is a person whose behavior matches his character and the assumption of his godliness, okay? And then Paul mentions his teaching, that this is a man who depends on God's word, God's word as the chief and final authority of what is true, that this is a person who loves and knows God's word and is able to teach it well, um, to teach the church in exhortation, Paul says, and even if push comes to shove, this is a man who, who can roll his sleeves up and go to battle over falsehood, that if there is deceit in the church, if there is someone coming in trying to discredit Jesus and his gospel, that the elders will be the first on the front line to defend the truth and protect the church from deception, okay? So there's a positive and a negative, in a sense, in that, right? That we love the church with God's truth, but we also defend the truth in the church. And uh, now, now, okay, so Paul has given us, and I'm just using broad strokes here, but Paul's given us a very good uh, sense of the character and the expectation, the bar, of what the elder ought to be. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives us another list. It's, it's basically the same list, but if you're curious as to what, what we see uh, in the Scriptures, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5, uh, there are places where, where what it means to be an elder is very clearly spelled out. But y'all, here's where the church can get it wrong, and I'm not above getting it wrong, and, I, and so I sincerely have to pray that God would give me the wisdom and the grace to never make these mistakes. But you might, if you've grown up in church, you might resonate with this as I say it. Here's where the church can get it wrong. Who should be an elder here at Harvest Church? Well, let's ask some questions. First, uh, who's been here the longest? Isn't that the first place we should turn? Who's got longevity? Who's got seniority? Who's a good leader? Who's somebody that we can point to that people will like to follow? Who's successful in business? Who's wealthy and has done well in, in, in the corporate world? Uh, who has a dynamic personality? Somebody that really grabs people's attention, you know? Uh, who gives the most money? Uh, who has a lot of opinions about how things ought to be run? Let's make that guy an elder, right? And y'all, that's very easy to do because that's entirely natural. But can I just tell you in this, there is absolutely nothing in what I just said that is a biblical qualification. Nothing of what I just said reflects what Paul just told Titus or what Paul told Timothy or what Peter tells the church in 1 Peter 5. None of those things match up. We're talking about very natural assumptions that whoever the most dynamic and powerful and successful leader is, let's make him the leader of the church because then, of course, we'll succeed. But y'all, so many churches have come to ruin, and I mean that sincerely, because of ungodly leadership. God, clearly in the scriptures, God is not concerned with dynamic leaders over his church. That, that, there's no concern for that. What God is concerned with, we see it very clearly, is character. And that means, and I say this with all sincerity, that it, here at Harvest Church, or any biblical church, a man who is very low on the social totem pole, a man who is a, is a, a janitor, 
right? And in, in the eyes of the world, not very successful, not a great leader because of what he does for a living, that man is perfectly qualified if he's a godly man to be an elder and leader of the church. And that man can lead CEOs in God's way of doing things, right? The CEO label means nothing in God's economy if it's not a godly man who backs it up with his life. This is the kind of person we're talking about. Regardless of what success looks like outside of these walls, here at Harvest Church, God sets the agenda. Here's what it means to be a man of God who leads God's church. He's looking for godliness, and so are we. Okay? Um, this is a man who ought to be followed because he's following Jesus, not because he's dynamic and impressive. Okay? And y'all, I, you know, we, this is not a secret. Uh, it's it's, it's ever-present in the news cycle. We live in a world right now that is very suspicious of authority and power. And rightly so, a lot of times. Um, you know, we, we live, we live we're, we're in the midst right now of a very significant and powerful movement of women who are afraid of powerful men and who've been abused by powerful men. Right? And I'm not saying anything political. I'm just saying that, that there is a, a lot of legitimacy in a lot of these stories. This is a, this is a problem in our world. It should, and it's a problem in the church. It shouldn't be but it is. And we cringe to think about it. I cringe to think about it. I cringe to think that there are pastors and priests, that there are leaders in the church, that maybe there are people who look at me because I carry the label pastor and they assume the worst about me because of an abuse of power that's happened that I had no say in or control over. But that's the reality of the world we live in. How important is it for us at Harvest Church to protect people by establishing not domineering powerful men, but by establishing Christ-hearted servants. Okay, I'm just saying that right now. That as, if, 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 as much as it is in my power with all of my being, I will never set before you a man who is a shark, who will get the job done, even if it means people getting hurt in the way. We are shepherds. We are called to love and serve. Okay? And so there is a certain kind of person that the Bible identifies as, as being qualified to lead the church. And what we just looked at, listen, the qualities, the, the characteristics, those are important all by themselves. Okay, But I want to show you why it matters in the real stuff of life. Because what we're talking about is not establishing figureheads who will lead the church as decision makers. What we're talking about, I used the word a second ago, we're talking about shepherds, okay? And shepherds, listen, shepherds don't lead from an office somewhere unseen. Shepherds lead in the field, among the sheep. Shepherds are meant to smell like sheep because we spend time with the church in real life and we serve with all our hearts. That's what it's meant uh, by, by this, this concept of pastor, elder, shepherd. And so I want to show you from Acts 20, and if you're quick, you can turn to Acts 20, Go to your left a little ways in your Bible or swipe it on your phone. Go to Acts chapter 20. We are going to be there for a minute, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Here in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a picture, not just of the qualifications of character, but he's going to show us the heart. This is what an elder is meant to be like, and this is why it's important for all of us. Here in Acts chapter 20, what's happening? The Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem to share the gospel. And he knows that, that trouble awaits him there. He knows that he's going to end up imprisoned or maybe killed. And so on his way to Jerusalem, he, he wants to tie up some loose ends. One of the things that he is set on doing, he's in a little place called Miletus. 
close to Ephesus, and he calls for the Ephesian elders, the elders of the Ephesian church, to come out and meet him. He wants to give them some parting words. He knows that he'll probably never see them again. And this is a church very near and dear to Paul's heart. And so he calls for these men to come out, and they spend time together. He talks to them. They pray together. They weep together. And I want to give you a little snippet of what Paul tells them here. I want you to see Paul, the Apostle Paul's pastoral heart, yes, but also the charge he gives to these pastors, these elders. This is Acts 20, beginning in verse 25. Paul says to to these elders, Now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It's an amazing scripture. Paul, the first thing Paul does, you notice this, he cites his own example, not in arrogance, but he's, he's showing them what the bar is meant to be, and not just, not just the bar of godliness, not just the quality of character, but the heart of the elder, the heart of the pastor, the shepherd. He says that I boldly and lovingly proclaim the gospel of Jesus no matter the risk and no matter the cost. It was painful. You know, Paul gives us on occasion a list of the wrongdoing done to him, a list of the, the things that he experienced, and it is devastating to read, to even think about on his behalf, let alone to think about it happening to us. And yet Paul didn't shy away from the gospel, never once. He always was faithful to share, and he calls these men now to do the same. He says, you shepherd and you guard the church. The task is not easy, Paul says. People are going to come in. He calls them wolves. People are going to come in, and they are going to try to deceive the church. They're going to bring false teaching and try to create uh, doubt around the gospel of Jesus and run amok through the church. This is not a game, Paul says, and the, uh, the, the world is not friendly to the church. You need to anticipate this. And then Paul says something even more troubling. He says, even those from within the church are going to rise up and seek to say perverse things and draw the church away from the truth of Christ. And so Paul says, you be prepared and you seek, you seek out those who wish to poison the church and you defend her against them. And so listen, Paul, when Paul talks about shepherding here in Acts 20, he's not giving us a kind and cuddly, easy kind of mentality. He says, it's, you're not, you know, he's not calling us to just kind of pet the sheep and keep everybody nice and, and, and happy. He's saying, you better take up arms, men. And you protect, you defend. Uh, You do not allow the church to be ravaged. She is precious to God. When a wolf shows up, the shepherd puts his life on the line for the flock, right? That's the idea here. And so y'all listen, the, the work of a pastor, an elder, and those are interchangeable, the work of a pastor elder 
is not just to be the one in charge did, okay? We're not just in charge. We're not just here to operate, you know, the business and, uh, you know, facilitate the programs. Those things have their place, but that is not why we're here. That's not the, the, the essence of what it means to be a leader in the church. The calling is to model a life that is worth imitating, to nurture, to feed, to protect, and to love the flock of God, the church. This, and, and I hope you see it, this is why this matters so supremely to all of us. Because all of us are subject to the realities of life, to the, the, the realities of, of just day-to-day things. Some of us get laid off. Some of us lose loved ones and grieve. Some of us have wayward children. Some of us, have, some of us miscarry. We, we all go through incredibly difficult things, and we're not meant to go through those things in a splintered-off, lonely, individualistic kind of fashion. We're meant to have the body of Christ to bear the burdens alongside us with us, and the body of Christ is meant to be led by men who love well and who serve well. That's the way God established it. That's the way God's made it. This is not an incidental thing. Now, am I making this out to be more important than it really is? Here's the thing about me, and I'll just tell you guys the truth. I haven't always been this serious about this stuff. There was a time when I was a Christian, and I was, you know, I was pretty, I felt like I was a pretty strong Christian, when I thought, in all sincerity, the church is pretty optional. The church, you know, uh, is, is, is outdated, is hypocritical, is full of, you know, just, it, it's, it's, it's just a mess. And, uh, you know, it's boring, and it's, you know, it's, it's geared toward only certain kinds of people, you know, and if you, find, if you find a really good church, good for you. But otherwise, it's not that important. If you, you know, the, what can the church really do that, that Christians by ourselves or Christians in other forms of ministry can't do, right? Um, a lot of people have that mentality. A lot of Christians, that church is a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. If you find a good one, good for you. But otherwise, man, just, it's just you and Jesus, and that's enough. Podcast a preacher if you want to hear good preaching. You know, you, you, can, you can outsource all of it. Um, y'all, I obviously, I've changed. Uh, I'm, I'm not what I used to be, and I praise God for that. Listen, because that is not a viable option. There is no, what I just described is, is not, ju- it's not some sort of alternate route. You know, it's not, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a plan B. It's not as good as plan A, but you know, have at it. No, it is unbiblical, and it is absolutely anti Christ. Right? And I say, that, I say that forcefully because it needs to be said. There is no such thing as individualistic, take it or leave it, Christianity apart from God's church. And how did I come to that conclusion? Well, there's one verse that we just read that helped me. There's a lot, by the way, but here's one. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Will you look at 28 again with me? This verse has haunted me in, in all the right ways for a long time. Look at it. Paul says to the, to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, for all the church, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You're not elders because men uh, uh, created a structure in which you can lead. The Holy Spirit, God himself, has appointed you for this role to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, which he purchased with his own blood, Y'all, we are here right now. We are here right now. Not for any good thing that we've done. We just sang it a minute ago. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are only here because the Savior shed his blood for us. When God looked upon a world of sinners, rather than consigning us to judgment, which we deserved in our sinfulness, 
God placed that judgment instead on his own son. God took the judgment upon himself. The judge was judged. He chose that fate for his own son so that we might be given mercy instead. So that when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, that it was shed for you, that you might now be called a child of God, redeemed, saved, made new forever. We are only here right now because of the blood of Christ. He shed his blood to redeem us, and then this community of the redeemed, he decided to call his church. Paul does not say he purchased you individually with his blood. We know that's true. Of course that's true. But he says he purchased the church, plural, us. He died to create a community, a family. And y'all, I say this, this is so precious here, that when we come to faith in Jesus, when you come to faith in Christ, when you are forgiven of your sins, when you are made new and given new life, you don't just get a new life and a new heart, you get a new family. Now say that again, when you come to Jesus Christ in faith to receive redemption and the forgiveness of your sins, you don't just get a new heart and a new life, that would be enough. No, but God delights to give us a new family. I mean, look around. This is, this is a family. The church is a family that is bound together by something more powerful than DNA. What makes you family with your biological family? Well, we share the same blood. We talk about that. Blood's thicker than water, right? Family. We're bound together by the blood of someone else. A blood stronger, a blood greater than ours. The blood of a Savior shed for us. We are a stronger, greater, more eternal family than any biological family could ever hope to be. And I know that's easy to take for granted. I know sometimes that's hard to even imagine that that my church is my family. But that's exactly why Jesus died, to create not just an individual salvation, but a corporate one, plural, us, a new family of God together. And so, y'all, this is not, church is not just something we do. It's not an event we attend. It's who we actually are. It's who we actually are. Fundamentally, who you are, who I am now. We are the family of God together, bound together by his blood. We are his people. We are his flock. He is our great shepherd. He is the one who leads us, who nurtures us, who saves us, who lays his his life down for the sheep. That's what he's done. And now, very locally and very practically, God has delighted to graciously give us under shepherds, faithful men who will love and nurture and lead eye-to-eye, face-to-face, life-on-life. Those who, um, those who are sheep, an elder is a sheep, right? Because Christ is our Savior. He's our great shepherd. But he's also a shepherd because we've been called to do something unique, special, and divine. To love the church. To serve. Not to lead in a, in a bureaucratic way. But to lay our life down for you. Um, I'm not over-dramatizing this. I'm not. This matters. This matters.